I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. As Jews living both in Israel and in other parts of the world, we tend to go about our day-to-day lives worrying about the regular issues of our existence. You know, like, how am I going to pay the bills at the end of the month? Which Game of Thrones watch party should I attend? And of course, the eternal Papa John's or Domino's dilemma we all face from time to time. But not many of us stop this daily struggle with first world problems to contemplate on the deeper questions that may lurk in our subconscious. Like, what is our place as Jews in Israel or in America? What does it even mean to be Jewish in the 21st century? And what does the future hold for us as a religion and as a people? Luckily for, for us, some people do try to tackle these mind-boggling questions and clear a path for an important discussion. One of these people who do that is Tal Kainan, an extremely successful businessman, investor, and social entrepreneur, author of the recently published book, God is in the Crowd. Tal Kainan was born in America, and when he was 21, he decided to move to Israel and join the IDF. He became the first Ole combat pilot, and he still serves as a reservist in the IAF. Tal is one of the co-founders of Clarity Capital, Israel's first full-spectrum asset management firm. Tal also engages in social activism. He is the chairman of Koret Israel Economic Development Funds, an NGO that gives credit to small businesses. We are super thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are thank, you doing? Thank you, guys. Hello. So why did you write this book? <laughs> well, let me try to sell you a premise. Um, and that is, if you look at the Jewish story, you can look at it as, as a story of constant evolution. And I think that is. There have been, uh, there's probably never been a generation of Jews that bequeathed the same Judaism to their children as the Judaism they inherited from their parents. But it has two episodes of revolution, of fundamental reinvention of what the entire enterprise is about, how we conceive of ourselves how we govern ourselves. Uh, the first is the Exodus, right? We leave Egypt. It's a good good time to be uh, talking about it. We leave Egypt as a group that is, I think, difficult to define. It's unclear exactly where our borders are. We're not the only slaves in Egypt. Um, how would we govern ourselves if we were not slaves? Uh, what exactly is it that, that binds us together? Are we a religion? Are we a nation? What, what are we exactly? And we end that process 40 years later as sovereigns in our own land, uh, ruled by kings and prophets, our own, and governed by a book of law, which will stay with us and has stayed with us to, to this day. It's a fundamental transformation of the entire enterprise. What are we? The second is the expulsion from the land of Israel, the second expulsion under the Roman Empire. Uh, where we go from a pretty traditional configuration, at least physically, right? We have, we, we're, we're people that is organized around a geographic hub and its governance, like the Phoenicians and the Nabataeans and pretty much everybody uh, in, 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 in the region, uh, our governance is inextricably tied to that geographic centrality. And poof, within a generation, we, we're scattered across hundreds of different nodes around the world most of which have no contact with most of the other nodes. There is no Pope officiating our evolution, and our evolution is considerable, right? Where it's already a very complex orthodoxy 
uh, at the time of the dispersion, and it becomes much more complex over the subsequent centuries. Um, we evolved dramatically. Nobody's coordinating that evolution. We're not in touch with each other. What are the odds? What would you have said in the year 130, looking at that final, uh, the, the collapse of the final revolt against the Roman Empire? What would you say the odds are that this identity Jew survives 100 years? I, I would have bet against it for sure. Just it doesn't make sense to me that it would, it would continue uh, to survive. And yet here we are, 1900 years later, with a very coherent identity, maybe the most coherent diaspora identity uh, uh, in the world. That was a fundamental transformation, again, in the way we conceive of ourselves and in the way we govern ourselves. And I put forward a theory in the book as to what that governance structure looked looked like in, in the last 2,000 years. But before we get to that, if we get to that, the premise I want to lay down is that we are on the eve of the third fundamental transformation of Judaism. Um, like the first two, it has to do with a with a shift in the geographic distribution of the Jews in the world. Um, diaspora is no longer a useful model for describing how we look on the globe. Uh, 90% of us are in the United States and Israel. We're now a bipolar people. Very much reminds me of a period where we were in Jerusalem and, and Babylon. The rest of diaspora is there. I think it's consequential. It's important. I don't want to be dismissive of it, but let's be clear. It's, it's already 10% and it's shrinking, right? The, these two poles are growing. And there's something I think very special about these two poles or these two jurisdictions. I, I use the word uh, intentionally in that I think they are patently philo-Semitic. And I, I, I know not everybody agrees with that, and we can talk about it if you guys are, are interested in talking about it, but um, the United States is not anti-Semitic in the way that almost every other Jewish hub has been for the last 2,000 years. Uh, we are true members. This wasn't always the case, but it is the case, I think, for my generation going forward. We are true members of the American franchise. We are welcome. We can think of ourselves purely as American. Jew is optional. That's not the case in France. That wasn't the case in Europe or the Middle East or North Africa ever. Can we know that for <clears throat> sure, though? No. No, and I think it's it's a legitimate question. When you say that, where you're you're basing that upon what exactly? Well, studies, but but people, what people think and what people say in polls are two different things. You're right. So l let's see what they're saying and let's see what they're doing. Um, first of all, my, my personal experience, right? I, I grew up in New Hampshire, in a place without not not that many Jews. Eitan, you grew up in a place with not that many Jews. I don't know about Hardly you anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. I uh, I never encountered anti-Semitism in my life, never, and I look pretty Jewish. I'm not uh, uh, not not the typical New Hampshire uh, profile. Never. I mean, I would stop you at the airport, like <laughs> yeah. profiling and everything. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, if you look at polls, the the Jews are the most admired ethnic group in the United States by a significant margin, more than wasps, more than any other minority group in the United States. That's what people are saying. Maybe they're doing something different. But one of the things that we should be looking at is one of the things I kvetch I, I about in the book, and a lot of us do, is the intermarriage rate in the United States. Obviously, it takes two to tango. There are plenty of people out there who are very happy to marry somebody of uh, a member of the Jewish people. Uh, it's just not an obstacle. Now, now, there have been periods in history where that, that's been the case in other geographies. 
I'm not sure to this extent. In fact, I, I, I haven't found a, a, another example where it's to this extent. But I think what's important to us, you know, to understand is, as, as we look ahead, it was never 45% of the Jewish population of the world. It was 3% or 4%, right, in, in India. Maybe, maybe in Spain in the, uh, in, in the 14th century. Um, were we ever close to that, that, that level of concentration? So that the consequences of any, any sort of decline or, or significant decline in the Jewish population in the United States are much different, much, much more dramatic than they ever have been in, in, in a single jurisdiction in, in diaspora. But I, again, I think, I think before we get to that, we should, I think, note that if you accept that premise, we have both an opportunity in front of us and, and a challenge. The opportunity is, if I'm right, and at least for the time being, and I think it's a legitimate question whether this continues or, or not, and I don't have a, a, you know, a certain answer. Um, but if I'm right, we have the opportunity for the first time in 2000 years to define ourselves without the mold of anti-Semitism. That, that's never been the case. Jew was not an optional identity for 2000 years, and it is today. And that's exciting to me, is that we can actually construct a, 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 a real vision for who we wanna be and, 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 and move toward that, that vision. On the other hand, though, I think the consequences... We is American Jews? Jews. Jews, period. Period. But the fact that there is no anti-Semitism in America doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist in the world. No, I, I think it does exist in the world. You're right. Um, so if we get into the specifics of, the, of, of, of what I see as the threat to, let's call it Jewish extinction, and I, I don't like to come off as, 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 as negative or pessimistic. I, I don't think this is the uh, most likely scenario, but it's... A realistic scenario and i think it, it, it's realistic enough that we really need to be looking at it right now um meaning this is not just about the opportunity to reinvent ourselves in a positive way this is also about the imperative to reinvent ourselves in some way that's going to be um uh sustainable when it when when judaism is an option so i'd say that the, the two scenarios are as follows the united states is pretty clear intermarriage is the is the mechanism it's not the issue but it's not the disease so, so to speak it's 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 more symptom than disease but it is the mechanism of our uh certainly numerical decline in the united states uh, and there the math is is pretty clear if you assume linearity and i don't assume linearity but let's not assume it's better than linear it could be worse so it's a good it's a good base case if as the 2013 pew survey tells us 72 percent of non-orthodox jews we'll get to orthodoxy separately 72% of non-Orthodox Jews who marry, marry non-Jews. That leaves 28% of non-Orthodox Jews who marry, marrying Jews. So remember that a significant percentage of those happen to marry Jews. That's who they met. That's who they fell in love with. It wasn't a decision that, that that's where we're going to start. I don't know how many. I don't think anyone's done that, that study, but I think it's an important, uh, an important thing to, 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 to note. We have 1.9 children per Jewish family. Fewer and fewer of us get married. Right in the in the equivalent survey in two thousand and and three, fifty nine percent of adult Jews were married. In two thousand thirteen, fifty one percent of adult Jews were married. It's almost a twenty percent decline. Uh, by the way, part of that is people marrying later. That's fine, but it has a similar effect. Run those numbers out two generations. My grandchildren are, assuming linearity, extremely unlikely to even meet another Jew of the opposite sex and the same age in the United States. 
That's right. if you live in, in America. That's America. So and that's, feel, with feel, that's with J-Swipe. That's with J-Swipe. I feel like, uh, and with Tinder, I feel like maybe Tinder is the cause. <laughs> but I feel like that this is, maybe this conversation is, is 70 years old, meaning maybe you're talking about the survival of American jewelry. But, mm -hmm. but here in Israel, we have a home for the Jews. If you move to Israel, those statistics probably change drastically. Yeah. And so what we're talking about is kind of their problem. Here's the hub, right? Not our kind problem. of the yeah. The diaspora right. is slowly going to sure. die off, and if so they that, want to marry themselves out of existence, then so that that's the traditional Zionist approach, of course. And you know, we it, it took us until the '70s to have a prime minister that really took the diaspora seriously. It was this was really the only way to be a good Jew was to be mm -hmm. an Israeli Jew um, in, 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 until you know the, really the last generation. Here's, I think, the problem with that is um, obviously intermarriage is not what's going to do us in, in Israel. That's not the threat here. But when I look at Israel, I see a, a, a much more frightening threat in that, you know, and I call the chapter on American Jewry dying in our sleep. If we're going to die, that's the way to do it. You know, I have three older brothers, all married to non-Jewish women, non-Jewish nieces and nephews. I love them. We're very close. There's no personal tragedy here at all. It's a blessing. If you find love, I would even tell my kids, if you find love, grab it it's not easy to to find that whatever form it takes and these nephews it. have zero relations to their jewish israeli whatever roots. yeah with one exception yeah so and and that one exception is not not, not what you would call a real relation that's that, right that, that's a commitment in any way uh and, and we're typical in that respect it's not this is not this is the norm this is not the exception that's not how it looks in israel Obviously, we don't meet non-Jews, so we don't marry non-Jews. That's essentially what's, what, what, what's happening here uh, in large scale. What I'm afraid of in Israel is a much more traditional Jewish extinction uh, in that it won't be pleasant. It will be the... Uh, Civil war. Yeah. So, so, right. So I, 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 I hope not. I hope that's not where we go. But the threat that I see, and again, it's just a threat. This is not prophecy. It's, it's, it's just risk management. And so let, let's address... Let's address the threats that we that we see, um, especially if it doesn't cost us too much to address them. And I don't think it, it, it costs us too much. But we talked about Jewish governance in diaspora. No pope, no central conductor. It's a very inefficient form of governance, but it's extremely resilient, extremely robust. There's no head to cut off. Uh, anywhere. There's no country to invade if you want to, you know, uh, uh, you know get, get rid of these people. I'm a Zionist. I'm for Jewish sovereignty in this land. I think that's, uh, that's a good idea. Uh, however, it does have some unintended consequences that I don't think we ever really dealt with. And I don't blame anybody. We didn't have a lot of time to, to, to deal with these things at the, um, you know, at, 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 around independence. But one was the method we use to reconcile differences okay in in diaspora you might have been in a community that ate legumes on passover you might have been in a community that didn't eat legumes on passover it was okay to diverge on that level for a certain amount of time sometimes the divergence went so far that one of you never came back to judaism kind of uh, so i don't know if you guys saw it there's a this spanish law in the books it's kind of a law of return if you can demonstrate uh sephardic ancestry you get automatic spanish citizenship mm -hmm. They're going to have to repeal it now because one of the results of all these prol prol proliferation, proliferation of DNA tests is that 23% of all citizens of Latin America 
have Jewish ancestry and it's Spanish, 23%. So we've, we've lost members constantly along the route. And that's, that, that, that's okay. That's, I think that, that, that's been part of the process and will continue to be, and that's fine. Um, but in the cases that we didn't, we had to reconcile our differences. And you know, we don't have to go into it now, but I put forward a thesis in the book as to how we did that. And it was a generational challenge. It's not something we sat down, adjudicated in a courtroom and decided, yes, we're, we're doing the legumes on Passover or no, we're not doing it. It was a generational, we're in the middle. And that, like that, evolution. Absolutely, exactly right. When we came here, we were able to adjudicate many of those questions with the swift sword of sovereignty. In many ways, that was a blessing. Uh, you know, we couldn't organize for our physical defense, for example, in the diaspora governance process. No way, right? You, too many decisions to take in too, too short a time. We needed a traditional hierarchical governance structure like any state has. But questions of Jewish identity don't lend themselves to that structure. Maybe other religions do. It's a separate, maybe a separate discussion. I don't think, I don't think Judaism does. One of the questions that we failed to reconcile here, and there are a number that are really fateful, and, and I think we need, we need to address all of them today, but one of them was, what exactly is this, the Jewish state? What is this? What, what's the vision? What are we trying to do here? What does Jewish mean? Well, that's a different one. In the I, state I, part, I mean. Well, what, what, what do we mean by nation state of the Jewish people? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Okay. And I argue that you can segment the Israeli population in accordance with their answer to that question. And I think there are three major categories, and then there's a fourth of no category, no answer to, to, to that question. The first I call the secularists, and in general, the architects are Herzl and Chadaam. A safe harbor for the Jews structured as a democracy. Not much more than that. That's really what we're going for. Maybe Khadam had some more kind of Jewish trappings, but certainly didn't want the government dictating religiosity to, uh, uh, to, to the citizen, citizenry. I say secularist and not secular because I think there are many observant adherents of secularism in Israel. The second group I call the theocrats, uh, and it's exactly what it, what it sounds like. I think in 1948, there were very few uh, people who uh, were subscribed to that, that vision. And those people had very limited political ambitions. Today, there are many, um, I think about a million. Uh, they're growing at a rate of 6.7, 6.8 children per family. So each generation is three times the size of the last. Like good Jews. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, <laughs> that, not, I'm not, 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 I don't want to judge yeah. any of these visions, but let's just be clear what this is. And they have increasingly maximalist political ambitions in this country to dictate religiosity to the citizenry in this country. These are not compatible visions. There's a third vision that I call the territorialist vision. It's small, it's extremely relevant right now. We either solve this in the next five or 10 years uh, and move on or it kills us, but, but we, we, we can get to that in a moment. But these are people who, who feel that sovereignty over the entire land of Israel is a higher priority than democracy and for some, in some cases, even a higher priority than Jewish statehood. Meaning, You're talking about what most people would just call settlers. So n not really. I, I think it's... <laughs> and fakeling voters. So I, I'd say it's between 150 and 200,000 people. Yes, almost all are settlers. I don't think mm. it's all settlers, though. Ah, I see. Right? I mean, I think there, there are a lot of people who work at, you know, Clarity, who wear a kippah. They might live in Efrat or, you know, or, 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 or somewhere like that. 
and I would count them as secularists. In so that. Generally speaking, the more extreme side of the spectrum of settlers. Well, I think that, for, for, again, it's, it's my definition. So the, the, the clear dividing line is what's more important to you, democracy or the land. Mm-hmm. Meaning if we, as a democratic nation, decide that we're leaving, are you packing up or are you resisting? That, that's the dividing line. It's very clear. Um, it, so what, what is the, I mean, given the fact that, uh, you know, like the, uh, the, the traditionalists or the, not the traditionalists, uh, the, uh, theocrats. the theocrats were a couple of hundred, maybe a couple thousand at the beginning of the state. Yep. Now they are much larger in They're number like, and have, yeah. and have political ambitions, as you yep. said. Well, I mean, it seems like there's no, I don't know, there's no compromise. No hope. No hope for our no, secular. No, no, no. So I think there's hope. But let's first of all def- define the problem. Let, let's, let's be very clear about what the problem is. Uh, by the way, and there's a, a fourth group that I call the fourth Israel that is either not Jewish and has doesn't have a good reason to subscribe to any of these visions or is Jewish but is so economically and educationally marginalized. And this is the biggest group we have uh, that they're not really in this debate it's just not that they're not about visions and i think that they need the, to put food on the table yeah, and exactly yeah they don't have time for philosophy yes and that is an acute crisis in in a jewish society i think that's something we you know again there, there are a lot of things we should have done differently and that will continue to be the case that's fine um but although that's, most that's of these people belong to the theocrats uh Part well, of the I, equation so I, I would argue so i think they all bleed into each other to an extent right they're a theocrat territorialists that exists they're probably not theocrat secularists that, that that's that's probably not a category but yeah we there is overlap There's one guy and he's <laughs> yeah, really confused <laughs> he's confused <laughs> and it's not all the time so. <laughs> um but here's the thing i, I don't want to i'm not grading or rating any of these on a moral basis i don't i don't think any of them frankly is adequate uh, is an adequate vision for 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 jewish statehood however we do have to acknowledge that there are two fundamental prerequisites to survival in the middle east physical survival in the middle east we need to be militarily strong i, I don't see an alternative to that um, we understand what happens to weak the weak in the middle east their their lives are short and we need to be economically strong if we're going to sustain our military strength 20 percent of the israeli tax base is accretive they pay in more to the system than they take out of the system 80% takes out more than they put in, in shekels, right? Not, uh, the, again, it's not, not, not a value judgment. It's just the fact. Right. And that's pretty much any capitalist democracy. That's not unique to Israel, that 2080 rule. What's unique to us is that entire 20% is secularist. That's, that is who is contributing to our tax base. When we talk about startup nation and Israeli high tech and all that, that's the secularists. They also send their kids to fight our wars. The territorialists send their kids to fight our wars. I think they're the best people we have today fighting our wars. If I'm in a foxhole with anybody, that's who I want to be with. I love them. I love the ethic. I, wonderful. And again, without without agreeing or disagreeing with the ideology behind Many it. Many of them also work and pay taxes, to be fair. So they work and pay taxes. The calculus, though, has to be what does it cost to sustain the infrastructure and the security of those communities versus what they bring in in revenue? And they're a drain. Economically, right. they're a drain. But at least they take part. 100%. That, uh, yeah, yeah, 100%. But again, I'm not not, yeah. not not judging them. I'm just saying this is, yes, strong military contribution, small numbers, but 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 great people, negative economic contribution. Okay. The theocrats are a negative on both. 
Mm-hmm. The fourth Israel that's uncomfortable to say, but I think is a wash. It's about a zero. It's not a negative. It's not a positive, unfortunately. They're I think, actually the most tragic uh, uh, community that we talk about here. Here's what I see happening in Israel, or here's the, the threat, at least, is that the secularist vision is getting voted out of existence. It's just numbers. It's democracy, right? This is, this is democracy at work. And the secularists are gradually leaving. They're going to America. And, or you know, Berlin. Yeah, some are going to Berlin. Um, I, I might be wrong, but I always see that sort of as a way station. Let's go to make some money or go to do something, you know, as they say. And, and, and it, it, it seems more temporary to me, but I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, but many go, especially the best go to Silicon Valley yeah, exactly. and stuff like that. Right. So if you spend time in the hedge fund community in New York or in the investment banking community, certainly if you spend time at Apple and Google and Facebook and a thousand startups in, uh, in, in Silicon Valley. And you did. Yeah. You will see our best and brightest. Mm-hmm. And I look at my squadron. About half of the people that I served with as a Sadil are gone. They live outside of Israel. But I have to stop you for a second because is it really our best and brightest or is it like the people who weren't able to start startups here and, you know, create these wonders like ways. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like, is it the people who said, okay, I, I, I won't do my own startup in Tel Aviv, but I'll go to Silicon Valley and be a high level uh, employee in Facebook yeah. or in, uh, I don't know, Google. So when I th- think of the people that I flew with in the air force, one is a acclaimed neurosurgeon in Australia He's definitely somebody who could have made it here had he wanted to make it here. It's a very competitive neurosurgery uh, world in, in Australia, and he's, he's at the top of it. Uh, one of them is a venture capitalist in Beijing. His kid, his son, recently graduated university in Beijing, didn't, didn't come back here. High, high caliber venture capitalist. He, he did make it here. It's not that he, you know, he had successive funds in Israel. At some point started investing in China, and at some point realized, you know what, I should actually be living there. And that was that migration. Uh, two of them run companies in Silicon Valley. One of them post-exit, a big exit. Definitely somebody, and he made it here. He did make it here. It's not that he could have made it, he did. Uh, bankers and hedge fund managers in New York and, uh, and in London. A classics professor at Princeton. It's, it's the gamut. These, these mm-hmm. are high-punching, you know, people who are really punching above their weight uh, in, in any in But any these context. people could have had good lives here. A hundred percent. They chose... Good lives el- elsewhere, but mm-hmm. they could have good lives here, maybe a little worse than no. in Silicon Valley. But... <laughs> By the way, I, I, don't th- I don't think worse. I don't think worse. Well... What, I, what I see happening, though, is I, and these people aren't leaving in protest. They're not leaving because they're disgusted with Israel or because it's hard in Israel. That's not why they're leaving. By and large, they're leaving for extremely tactical, banal reasons. Nothing you would say is, uh, you know, it should, should concern you when you watch them leave. They're packing up for a temporary trip. One of them's company got acquired by a California company, and they had to go move, move this and create, you know, build this division in California. That was part of the deal. It wasn't a move that says, you know, I want to leave. Um, you know, one of them went for an advanced degree and got a great job offer after the you know, advanced degree and said, all right, we'll stay here for a few years. And I think, again, for most people, the intention was to leave temporarily. It wasn't, um, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting Israel. In fact, I would say if you ask most of them, they say, of course, I'm coming back at some right. point, right? But there's something that happens when your kid turns 16. And I write about it in the book, and I interviewed a lot of people that are of exactly the cut that we're, that we're, we're talking about. 
And that is when you're living here and your kid turns 16 and he gets his Tzavrishon and all of his friends got the Tzavrishon. There's no decision that's happening now. There's no decision. You you roll with it, right? I mean, that's life. that's human beings. It's uh, you know, behavioral economics 101. Is right. We try to avoid decisions. If there's a default, we will more than likely take the default option, and that is to serve if you are a secularist or a territorialist or a fourth Israel citizen of Israel. Um, it's kind of like in the United States, where I describe it to people is is, is for for Jewish Americans, uh, college. Kid turns 16, it's time to start preparing for the SAT and getting your resume lined up. And that's not a discussion. That's, that is the default. If you're not going to college, that's a discussion. That's a different, that, that's the same thing here. But when you're Israeli in Palo Alto or in New York and your kid turns 16, you've got a decision to make. It's an active decision. And it may come framed as a timing decision, right? You may say, listen, I'm about to get my green card I'm going to hold out another year. Let him let him do a year of college before we, um, you know, before we move back. Or I'll be a toshav chozer if we if we stay for another two years. Or it's often framed in, in that sense. Often it's much more clear though. It's much more clear, where people look around and say, "Hang on a second, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do it." Let's weigh the costs and benefits. Something we don't do when we're in Israel. Kid might die. And maybe if and if we stay, the kid won't die. So I, I think it's a pretty so you, clear yeah, balance. You have, you have that. And look, I, I think a lot of people, certainly when I look at it, I, I don't think, I mean, statistically, it's a pretty safe place to be in the Israeli army, statistically, right? It's not, 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 not a particularly dangerous uh, place. Sometimes it gets more dangerous, but... But as a parent, you yeah, you, you don't rationalize this way, I guess. I think a lot. I think you're yeah. right for for a lot of people. But for a lot of people, it's 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 I, I think much more basic than that. Which is, listen, we like to talk about you know kids going to Shmona Matayim and uh, having these brilliant careers and going to Stanford and or the Technion or something after afterwards. Let's remember that that is a tiny tiny sliver of the Israeli population. Most of us go and do something that is not going to enrich us in in, in a big way. If you go to you know elite combat units, you're getting amazing leadership training. You're getting a lot exposure to all sorts of things you're not going to get anywhere else. That that's there, and I acknowledge it. I experienced it. I I believe in it. I think it, it's great. That's not what most of us get, and I think parents understand that. And they say to themselves, "Well, why should I sacrifice my kid if so many other kids his age will never go to the military? The the sons and daughters of right. the Orthodox so I'd, I'd, Jews. I had dinner that's with the a, main point. I, I had dinner yeah. with a friend." Um, who has kids, she lives in California, Israeli, um, was an officer herself, exactly the profile that we're, that we're talking about, who told me she plans to do everything she can to prevent her kids from coming back to Israel and serve. They're young kids, we, we still have time. But, and we talked about it. There's the point that you made, but she made it actually in, in, in two contexts. One is, listen, our neighbors across the street in California they're Jewish. Their grandparents got on a different boat in Poland than my grandparents. So their kid gets to go to Stanford while mine is supposed to sit in a checkpoint and get shot at for three years. I don't, I don't like that deal. I'm not, and I don't have to sign up for that deal. I understand now the context. I can juxtapose with him. And you know what? He, he's a Zionist. He's a, he'll write checks to APAC. I'd like, I like his deal better. I'll write checks to APAC. That, 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 that's a better deal for me. And when she looks back at Israel, she sees that her first grader right now is probably in the first class, the first age class in Israel, where it is a minority, a minority of Israelis who will get draft papers in 10 years. That's an important threshold. 
I don't think it's a breaking point. I don't think it's a point of no return or anything like that. But it is an for us threshold. Israelis for sure. It's like it's we can't absorb it, you know, anymore. For us secular Jews here in Israel, like we reached a point where this is it. Like we can't stand this not for sure. much longer. I'm not sure we've reached that point yet. We're clo- we're cl- we're getting we're getting close. there. But do you really think that that kind of dilemma goes through the minds of? I mean. I understand this this one woman, but do you really think on a, on a regular basis it goes through the minds of people who are considering whether or not to send their kids to the army here in Israel? C- certainly not if you're living in Israel. If you're living in Israel, this is just not something. No, that, for that comes American up. Jews or for diaspora for, Jews. For American Jews, it's just not a question. I mean, Amer- that that's that's we're, we're we're so far from the question of whether we have any feeling towards Israel at all. Forget about sending our sacrificing our kids for Israel. Forget about but that. Yeah, that's yeah, just not even Israelis. on the table. Israelis who live in the United States, absolutely yes. Mm. And, you know, my... Makes sense. Also. Of course. Look, and as I was writing this, I was imagining this as my kid's problem or maybe my grandkid's problem. It's our problem. It's happening right now. I'm seeing it now at an alarming rate. And again, let's be careful of the assumption of linearity. We've always had a revolving door, right? We've always fetched about the brain drain from Israel, and we've always rejoiced that many of these people come back. I think there's a latent assumption that... You know, if 90% of these, this cut of Israelis that we need to sustain us militarily and economically, if 90% came back in the 1990s and 80% came back in the 2000s and 70% come back in this decade, at some point, you know, it'll be 60 or 50%. We'll understand that this, this is a crisis. We'll sound the alarm and we'll do something. There's linearity baked into that assumption. And I think that's a very dangerous, very dangerous assumption. There is a point, there's a threshold where we lose critical mass. And I think then then we see people here actually making that decision as I don't want to be here. I can I can use the Spanish uh, exit option and go become a citizen of Spain and have an EU passport and not be part of this. If I'm talented, if, if I'm, uh, you know, if I have the, the right educational background, I can go to the United States. I can get a, you know, an expert visa and go work in Silicon Valley or something else. And these are exactly the people that we need here. So, but, you know, all of these issues uh, you're raising here. To us, Israeli, secular Israeli Jews, it's, you know, we live, it, for us, it's almost benign in a sense, because we live through these questions, and to us, I guess it's, there are no answers to these questions, and, I, like, when you raise these issues to me, I'm pretty hopeless, I don't see any of the things you describe changing. Right. Uh, <laughs> Generally speaking, no, it was hopeless. Yeah, no, but seriously, because and 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 also, you know, when I think about uh, the problem, I'm very pessimistic. So you coming because I don't know how to descri- describe you. You're in Israel because you don't live right now in Israel, but you lived here, so you're like fifty fifty. But your base is now in America, correct? Yeah. So how do you see? What do you see that I cannot see from your perspective? So I don't know if you see it or not, but I would say, first of all, we're suffering from a common ailment, American and Israeli Jewry, which is good news because it's the same medicine, ultimately. The first section of the book is titled, Should There Be Jews? And that's an honest question. That honest meaning, let's, let's be willing to entertain a negative answer to that question. Maybe we don't see a use for having Jews in the world. We need to start there. If we think Judaism is something worth preserving, the next question has to be, what's my role in that? How exactly do I uh, perpetuate this, this people? If you're Israeli before you're Jewish, 
we have a problem. Normalcy is just not a worthy ambition. It's not a sustainable ambition for the Jewish state. First of all, we're not normal. We're not normal, and that's we're never going to achieve normalcy. That's just not the Jewish people. We're, we are exceptional in a lot of different ways. We're not going to have normalcy uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Israel. If you want normalcy, go to California. It is so much more accessible in California than it is in, in Tel Aviv, even in Tel Aviv. Much better avocado toast there. Yeah, better avocado toast. Uh, so that, that can't be the ambition. Israeliness, and again, here, I, I, again, it's not to blame, but the ideology of our builders, right? Our architects were Jewish. Our builders were anti-Semitic Jews, right? They were socialists that were trying to expunge any remnant of a European Jewish stereotype. They were going to be muscular and tanned, and they were throwing out the books. That was a problem. I think it was a big big problem because there was a baby in that bathwater and it, it was the, the the most important thing that, that 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 animates us they didn't succeed in killing it though we still have the jewish spark in israel and it's something we can resuscitate but the foundation has to be jewish if we're not here because we're jewish then I'd, i don't see any in any future for us now how do we get people to choose judaism Again, first of all, let's let's make sure we ourselves are convinced that that, that is a choice worth making because it has a cost, obviously. It has a cost. You can go to America and within a generation or two not be Jewish anymore, right? That's that that is that that, that that's your option today. If we see a value in it though, and I see tremendous value in it, I understand not everybody does and that's legitimate. That's fine. We don't all have to agree on this. We don't all have to stay Jewish. That's fine. Uh but let's first of all acknowledge that we want there to be Jews in the world and then start working backward from there. Israel is a, a, a very important tool, a very important platform for sustaining Jewish identity. But that's all it is. It's an asset that belongs to us. And let's be clear, it has to belong to all of us. I think this is, this is one, of the, one of the fallacies of secularist Israel is they're by and large Israeli before they're Jewish. The guys that I flew with, it took me 10 years to figure this out. <laughs> But when I was flying into battle, it was for Jews in Jerusalem, but also Jews in Baltimore and in Toronto and in Vladivostok. My wingman was not flying for those people, not fighting for those people. He didn't really care about those people. He cared about Israelis, by the way, Jewish, non-Jewish. He cared about Israelis. I care about Israelis too, let's be clear. But it is a fundamental failure of Zionism that many of us, don't realize what we're fighting for here exactly because all if all it is is israeliness and israeliness to you means just democracy and here you know i hate to hate, hate to disagree with gal gadot but i think bibi's right in this little altercation we're not here to start a democracy democracy is our chosen form of government let's fight tooth and nail to preserve it it's valuable for sure but that's not the goal that's not our mission here this is the nation state of the jewish people and we're here at somebody else's expense let's be honest about that if we're going to justify that, we have to be the nation state of the Jewish people, not the nation, the arbitrary nation state of the Israeli people. That that has no meaning, and it has, I, I don't see, I don't think it has a moral justification. But perhaps more importantly for an Israeli audience, there's no practical justification. It's not sustainable practically. So either we're about the Jews, or we're probably about nothing. In which case, we should dedicate our resources to a, an orderly unwinding of this four thousand year old enterprise. Um, I don't think we need to do that. 
I think we can we can keep it, we can sustain it, we can improve it, we can do something quite quite exciting. And, and the last section of the book is dedicated to prescription. Here's what we need to do. Here's here's a plan. Um, do you? But you you're hopeful. <clears throat> very for, for the future of this state. Very. Look, I mean, the, these are trends that I, I I recognize. I think most readers recognize them as well. Um, but I think we also recognize that we've never had more power. Never. Not in 2,000 years, not in 4,000 years. We, we, it, we, first of all, the fact that we're concentrated in two jurisdictions has a lot of benefits as well. It's not just, uh, not, not just drawbacks. The fact that we've never been more prosperous, better organized politically ever in the history of Judaism than we are today gives us massive resources. We've got a steering wheel in our hands. We can steer this. We can do it. We've got to decide to do it. We, we need to understand that that's the exercise, first of all. You know, there's a fork in the road. We need to decide which, which fork we're taking. Once we've decided, though, I'm con convinced that we have the resources to, to navigate uh, this to a, 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 a very exciting uh, outcome for the Jewish people. But, but it starts with recognizing that there is a fork in the road, and it's right now. Some of your uh, language, your language confuses me because you say we, but you don't live here. And this raises other questions because... What the Israelis say, it's not fair because you're saying Israel is everybody's, but only we, those who live here, mm. suffer the consequences right. of war. Sure. And is it fair to treat it as everybody's, if not any, everybody share the load? Right. So here, here's, here's a good reconciliation of that tension, and I think it's, it's, a, it's an important one. We have two missions here in Israel. Israel has two missions. We've obfuscated between the two for 70 years. Let's get some clarity as to what exactly we're doing here. Mission number one is to be a state like any other state. We've got to deal with the plumbing of, 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 of statehood. Healthcare policy, education policy, defense policy, fiscal policy. These are, everybody has these problems, not just Israel. We have a government that is dealing with all of these issues. We can argue about how well, but it's working. A second mission is to be the nation state of the Jewish people. We've confused the two. It's been very unclear what that means, nation state. Of the, it's, it's back to this question of the competing visions. What, is that, what does that mean exactly? What I would argue is in the first mission, only citizens of Israel should have a voice. There is no reason to grant anybody else, right? If you're not sending your kids to fight the wars, you should not have a vote on defense policy. Clear. I think that's that, that, that that's pretty clear. And by the way, most American Jews would agree with that. That's not, uh, in fact, they agree with it a little bit too much. I'd like them to feel a little bit more ownership on of, of what happens here. On the second point, though, this is not a question for all of Israeli citizens. It's only a question for Jews. If you're a Druze or a Muslim or a Christian, we need to work out an arrangement that, that, that really right, uh, delivers civic equality, which we don't have today. Let's not Let's not beat around the bush. We don't have it, and, and we should. that should be an aspiration of ours. But it is the, an asset of the Jewish people, and we can, I think, define three areas of governance that determine uh, who we are as a, as a Jewish state, and they're not defense policy and they're not fiscal policy. Number one is defining who is a Jew. Who is a Jew for purposes of full citizenship in Israel under the law of return? What we have today, we borrowed from the Nazis. It's the Nuremberg Laws. You get asylum in this country. It's not really full citizenship. It's asylum if you have a Jewish grandparent. If it happens to be the right Jewish grandparent, you also get full citizenship. 
but otherwise it's, it's, it's really just asylum. You don't have the full rights of citizenship uh, in Israel. Who determines who is a Jew? Two men today. We've elected or have appointed two popes to Judaism. Mistake. That's something we need to take away. I don't think we need to disband no the rabbinate, but that can't be the way we decide who's, who's a Jew and who's not. I put forward in the book, it's maybe too, too long for this conversation, but I put forward a book, a, a suggestion. Here, here's a way we could define that in a Jewish way, in the way that's worked for the last 2,000 years in defining who is, a, who, who is a Jew. That's question number one. Number two is custody over the holy sites of Judaism. We're parked here in the worst neighborhood on earth and not in Argentina or Uganda or Oregon or somewhere else, specifically because this is the cradle of Jewish civilization. The holy sites to Judaism are the reason that we are in this specific piece of earth. They belong to the Jews. We're just custodians of, uh, of those holy sites. Control over how we access those holy sites has to be of all Jewry, not just Israeli Jewry. And I'm not talking about Christian and Muslim holy sites. That's none of the American Jews' business. That's, that's, we have a you know, ministry of religious affairs in Israel that's dealing with that. Again, better or worse is a separate question, but that, that's how that should be dealt with, not the Jewish holy sites. And the third is, what are the responsibilities of the government of the nation state of the Jewish people toward the Jewish people outside of Israel? What exactly are our responsibilities? That's not something we should be deciding behind closed doors in Jerusalem. That's something that the Jewish world has to decide on collectively. It's just those three areas. And I propose a governance structure that we set up separately that will operate in parallel to the government of Israel as a state to give, by the way, to be clear, this is kind of what the ambition for the Jewish agency was originally in the World Zionist Organization. An international convention to answer these basic questions. Yes. Basically. The only issue, though, it, it was always an advisory body. And we are experts in this country at ignoring advice. Yeah. That's not really, if it's not consistent with my short-term goals, I can ignore it. I don't have to listen to you. That body needs legislative teeth. It doesn't have to be the Jewish agency. I propose a different, different format. But, but that's generally the, the idea. Wow, we have a long way to go. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think I think we do have a scoop, which is I think we have a title. He said was right. Yeah, I was no, I was gonna say we have a title for the episode. Tal Kanan disagrees with Wonder Woman. <laughs> but uh, well, either or way, BB was right. Yeah. Um, All right. Wow, so, a yeah. lot to think about. A lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining thank you guys. us. The book is called God is in the Crowd. It's everywhere, basically, right? Yeah. Amazon. There's a there's a uh, a digital copy as well out there. Digital, like you can audio. For, okay, yeah, cool. I read it. Read it myself. Cool. Oh really? Yeah. Oh nice. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. So guys, so, check it out. God is in the crowd. We'll Tal Kanan. Yeah. And you're in social media, Tal? Not as much as I should be. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. The Jewish Journal is a news source. Um, they have columns, podcasts. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. And we accept donations. Yeah, guys, we do this on our free time. So if you want to throw a few shekels our way, to njb.com slash donate. That's it. Uh, and your foundations, maybe. You want to plug them? Uh, we're talking about Colette? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, check us out online. It's uh, K-I-E-D-F. Uh, .co.il uh, we we give loans uh not for profit loans to businesses we've done about 400 million dollars in, in in loans to date in Israel we th we think we've created about 50,000 jobs created or sustained uh i i think it's a uh 
a critical issue. We, did, we didn't get time to dissect Israel's economic challenges, but they are important. They're not the problem, but they are part of the solution. Uh, so please check us out. And if, uh, if you find it compelling, we'd love to, love to uh, meet you. So if you had any doubts, Tal is not only a philosopher, he's also a man of action. So he puts the money where his mouth is, which is admirable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you guys. Thanks. Thanks.